yeah, so basically uh, the topic of this transatlantic conversation is uh, Bidenomics and the ways uh, Bidenomics will have an impact on the world's economy, global warming of climate change, and uh, also how it will affect the domestic economy of the US and uh, the ways it's supposed to be financed. Uh, you guys want to add anything to that or take a quote from one of the articles and uh, just read it out and discuss it. I uh, found the article by Noah Smith most interesting, which talks about Bidenomics explained basically that there are uh, three pillars for the or like let's start out this way that there's a um, huge infrastructure program and uh, one quote I found to be interesting it was about dog food yeah. it's something along the lines that the uh, estimated spending on tackling climate change is the same amount of money Americans spend on uh, treats for their pets but I can't uh, but that's that's in America's race to net zero. Oh, okay. That yeah. So that's. But if you get the quote right there, right away. Yeah, I can. I, I can read it. I out. thought maybe it could start to spark a discussion. Discussion. Um, should I read it out? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Um, the jobs plan proposes to allocate much funding to universities. But the core promise on clean energy R&D is to invest 35 billion in the full range of solutions needed to achieve technology breakthroughs that address the climate crisis and position America as the global leader in clean energy technology and clean energy jobs. This sum, 35 billion, is less than Americans spend annually on pet food and will be spread over eight years. Either you don't dare ask for more or you underestimate the scale of the technology challenge and believe that the full range of solutions needed for the US to make these breakthroughs and become a global leader will be as easy as buying dot treats. Mm. And I think as, as Benedict mentioned, I, I find really interesting about that quote that um, even though um, the, the general assumption under the, the Biden administration is that we made a huge step towards uh, a more clean energy and to more investments um, compared to the Trump administration. Uh, many people might regard this investment of, I think in total, it's about $2 trillion, um, still far too less to achieve anything in the, in the near future and that it's still not enough. And I would like to know what you, what you think about this. If, this is right or and if there has to be done more than this um i think there's always going to be people that you know are on both sides whether oh this is not enough spending or this is way too much spending um i think the fact that biden or bidenomics really puts um the government in charge of taking care of um social policy and things like infrastructure and um, taking care of underprivileged uh, people in society, that's probably the, the right step forward. Um, it's 
personally, I think it's probably too little, um, but it's hard to try to um, play this balancing game between two quite polarized parties where one will say this is not enough um, assistance and the others like you're just giving out handouts to everybody. So it's a good start. It's a good discussion. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see how the money will actually be spent and whether it will have um, as large of an impact as Biden hopes it will. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, I think it's uh, it's a big first step, like considering, like both of you said, where we were a few years ago under the Trump administration, because uh, it's little, but it's a lot more than nothing. But uh, I also think we have to see how it plays out. And I think there should be a little more focused on uh, actually tackling global warming or climate change um, because I think in one of the articles it says that it's supposedly half of these 2.2 trillion are uh, supposed to be spent on tackling said issue but it's uh, not even fully written out how much of that money will be spent on that and that the amount of money spent on tackling climate change will depend on the income in the following years. So uh, I think I, I'm not quite sure if that's enough. If we can just hope be optimistic and hope that uh, 1 trillion going forward or others are asking for 15 trillion. Yeah, at the same time though, this, this plan goes further to tackling climate change than um, also the Obama administration did with their Obama relied a little bit more on the fracking and like clean fossil fuels. And so with Biden's plan, I think he plans to completely phase out fossil fuels and focus on renewable energy and other energy sources that don't have so much pollution coming from them. So it's interesting that he's, um, he's going even more, I guess, liberal in today's terminology with his, um, with those climate change plans. Yeah, but like, I, I agree with you, it's it's uh, interesting, but I think it, like the goal of Biden or the declared goal right now is to be have uh, zero carbon emission energy by 2035, mm -hmm. if I'm correct. And uh, looking at the energy consumption in the US, yeah, it's just a lot of, or I think there's a lot of need for investment. It doesn't have to come within the next eight years, but to just say, okay, we have the time span from 2029 to 2035 to fully tackle this issue might be a little short-sighted. Yeah, 2035 is only uh, 14 years away, <laughs> which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, I think there's also more pressure to like propose more concrete solutions, like more specific things, and also in other areas than the maybe Obama administration, because there's been so much pressure also from like, Gen Z and millennials to like actually get action done and not just speak anymore. Um, so maybe he's just trying to do something new um, that also has like a good effect on like the economy and stuff and like jobs that like that millennials want to go into. Cause I don't think that people who are in generation Z want to go into fracking or oil necessarily. 
Yeah, it's interesting. So with um, in in my industry, like where I work in um, commercial real estate investing, there's the larger kind of institutional investors, like the pension funds and the insurance companies. They now also, at least European ones, have mandates where they have to invest in projects that are have, meet certain criteria and goals, whether they're set out by the UN or um, by other organizations. And they won't even look at investments that don't meet certain clean energy metrics. And now, like from personal experience, um, if these institutional investors try to invest into the U.S. and work with like U.S. managers, the U.S. side is having a really hard time to understand that climate change does play such a huge role also in the business world. And it's not just this fluffy thing that can be disregarded or is a nice to have. And I wonder if, well, I'm assuming <laughs> part of Biden's uh, plan to go to focus on climate change and clean energy also has to do with the business side and realizing that the US can benefit a lot um, by implementing these new policies, um, not just societally, but also fiscally. Um, yeah, taking into consideration what you just mentioned, do you guys think that um, Americans in general are as aware of, of climate change and of the, of the threat that it poses to society and, and future economics as, in my opinion, in, in Germany, there is a basic agreement about climate change that at least most political parties agree that, the, that it is an immense issue for the future. But when I, when I read news from the US, especially Republican, um, how do you call them? Um, senators, et cetera, do not seem to, to, to tackle that issue as, as German or European politicians do. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I even think one of the articles said that, I think it was like obviously uh, overestimating, uh, said that uh, half of the country doesn't believe climate change even exists. And uh, if that's the, since we're in a democracy, if that's the basis of, uh, the discussion or of the way you can get politics through it's obviously very hard and that shows what what kind of a big of achievement it is that biden got this far but i think there's uh you could also think uh how would we change that since i think it's uh or not i think I, it is a scientific fact that climate change is real i think uh you could say that so there should be ways to uh educate or get the get the knowledge out out there because it's it's not like that half of the country is is dumb and doesn't and thinks what the scientists are saying is okay yes <laughs> <laughs> you could uh you could argue about that one but i i like my general assumption isn't that people are dumb it's just because they think so much of their economic interests and like you guys said that uh, or like especially alina said if you could show that investing into uh, climate-friendly products and uh, tackling the issue could also improve your fiscal position. If that, if that knowledge gets out there, I think there should, could be a huge shift in awareness. In awareness. Yeah, I think um, there's, 
kind of two, maybe more than two types, but in my view, two types of um, people that are more conservative. Um, there's kind of the, the business-minded ones that just want low taxes and um, want to get their returns and are very money-driven, I would say. And then there's uh, the Republicans that are more conservative because of um, either religious reasons or some sort of um, societal reasons. Um, and for those people to accept climate change and the scientific mind of, I don't know, the scientific proof that their climate change is happening, they have it so associated with the liberals and the snowflakes or however, whatever term they choose to call people that are liberal, that it will be very hard to actually educate and prove to them that climate change is happening and that this is something that you should also worry for your children and grandchildren. And those are also the people that tend to live in smaller towns where maybe they used to have a coal mine that closed down and maybe they used to have an auto manufacturing plant that also closed down where they can't find jobs now and they feel like it's maybe they're being left behind and somehow it's somebody else's fault and it's they might even believe climate change is real but if as long as like the liberal population also believes that it's real they'll fight against it it's I've seen it like in personal arguments so many times that it's just so ingrained this hatred of the other political party that it's really hard to just educate or for them to accept scientific facts. Um, so when the, whichever article said that 50% of the population doesn't believe in climate change, I would agree with that. Which I guess you got the best way of uh estimating that um i think yeah. we could uh kind of like there's an interesting point you brought up or like i think we also have one of the articles that talks about that a lot is that the manufacturing jobs are now gone from america and that is also one of the uh issues if you take the three points or the three pillars of bidenomics uh the healthcare jobs or the care jobs the other the way he wants to tackle uh the unemployment rate. What what do you think about that? And uh, maybe we could talk about it a little, and we could try to come up with a quote from the uh, one of the articles. Uh, so basically, do you think it's a good way to to bridge that divide? And maybe it's, let's say these people get get a good job and uh, they're financially taken care of. That maybe then they could see that climate change is real and look past. The hatred for the other party or do you think that's an illusion i think it's possible i think also it's interesting with healthcare in smaller towns and the way that um the hospital uh, system is actually run where they get the hospitals essentially get reimbursed by the insurance company depending on how many people come in and they also get a certain share from like i think the pharmaceutical industry but they don't really, they can't plan how many patients they'll have in a month period. So their cash flow doesn't look very stable. And 
Um, they obviously have like labor costs, uh, I don't know, other operational costs that they need to plan for. But in the big city, that's okay because the hospitals will have a continuous amount of patients coming in and out. But in smaller towns, it's really hard for them to plan for the future because they have this very <laughs> variable income source, depending on how many people come in and how much they get reimbursed by insurance companies. And it's, um, I don't know where I was going with this, um, <laughs> but it's hard to, for the people in small towns uh, to really get a stable medical treatment and uh, just care. And then they get sick and they can't work. And so like the job that they could have, they can't work anymore because they're not able to take care of themselves. I don't know, it's the vicious cycle of, um, yeah, I lost my complete train of yeah. thought. So come no, back to me on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, but like, I think uh, the main point he said is that it's, uh, that the fluctuate or like the difference or that it's so hard to have a fully covered US with uh, fully covered healthcare because of the local differences and the differences yeah. in income, I think. But on the other hand, uh, I now found the quote I wanted to talk about. It's uh, also playing into that. The context is that there's a two-way two ways, two way economy in the US or supposed to be in binomics. One way is the domestic sector that needs to be strengthened in order to get those jobs back and get the fully covered Medicare, I guess. Um, and the other one is the uh, Internet, international uh, innovation part of the economy, I'd call it. And uh, this is talking about why manufacturing jobs supposedly are ending in the US. I'll just read it out. Or if you wanted to add something in between. Uh, yeah, it says, um, Biden and his people, I'm sure, do not want the domestic focus sectors of the economy to be unproductive but they want those sectors to do the heavy lifting in terms of giving Americans, uh, most Americans a job as they did in Japan. Those domestic sectors include the care economy where Biden's team believes much of future employment will come from. This is a partly, partly a story about technology, automation, the end of mass manufacturing, employment, etc. With even retail jobs commonly believed to be at risk from new technologies, many people look to care work as the last thing we know we want humans to do. But it's also a story about globalization and the shift of global economic activity from the US to Asia. With Asia becoming the workshop of the world, the US with its low population density and relatively remote location has been forced to become something else, the world's research park. So it was the sense of the quote, uh, essentially that more of the manufacturing and kind of labor, uh, so quote unquote, low skilled, um, jobs have moved out outside the U.S. and the U.S. is really more of the R&D uh, research and development. Yeah. Uh, um, Basically, okay. and that the U.S. Uh, needs to, in order to hold its position as a strong economic force or the strongest economic force in the world, it needs to take care of the domestic jobs that are now getting away with manufacturing so there's not a mass unemployment and also improve the, the how would you call it uh, 
R and D sector. So basically, support uh, universities and uh, spark research and innovation. Yeah, it's. I've always had the question of how do you, you know, retrain the population that had those manufacturing jobs and are not necessarily looking for forward to or want to go back to university or. Um, you know, spend their own money for jobs they feel like were taken away from them is, I think, I think part of Biden's plan is to have some sort of these retraining programs in the smaller cities and towns, but I wonder how many people will actually take advantage of them or will then remain on unemployment or government aid programs. I think um, when I read this this quote again, uh, again or this this section of the text, um, my goal would be that the only exports from the U.S. would be R and D, as we have mentioned right now, and that on the other hand, the domestic sector of regional employment. So uh, the text mentions selling houses to each others, um, healthcare work, um, working in grocery stores. That, that should be uh, improved on a, on a local level and be expanded. And um, therefore, or by, in, in, the, in that way, um, that this vast domestic sector, sector um, should distribute the income generated by the R&D sector with higher taxes to um, invest in this domestic sector and to, to su supply um, social security etc to um, improve the living on a, a more regional level i think that is what the what at least this article focuses on okay so kind of what um like some of the big tech companies are doing um in places where they have campuses where they um, put in money to help um, build like affordable housing and perhaps parks or whatever but reinvest some of the um the income that they're generating from these communities back uh, to make it more affordable yeah i think it's actually a good plan but that still doesn't answer the question or like the issue you raise actually which i think is a very good point like what if those people that did a manufacturing job or job that's now gone let's put it this way uh, for basically the biggest part of their life yeah. uh, they don't want to retrain I think there should also be uh, there should be a way they are taken care of or it shouldn't be uh, learn to code or go home basically or do nothing so um, yeah it'd be interesting how much they will take or like they, they will uh, take those opportunities that are maybe given through the new investment in infrastructure. Yeah, it's interesting because there's, on a smaller scale, there's, I think, uh, private companies um, that have some retraining programs that are still like trade-based. So if you worked in a manufacturing plant, maybe you're helping build like solar panels in the middle of Kentucky or something. So you're, it's not so far away, you're not coding websites. Um, but I haven't seen anything on a larger scale in the U.S., and I'm not sure if 
there would be something that would work on a larger scale because I feel like there's so many different intricacies in each of these communities. But something does need to be done because uh, the people that live in the smaller towns, I have a sense, or at least I'm also reading. And then when I was in the US last year, I saw they're feeling more and more isolated and they just, there's more angry. Like they were angry at the government. There was lots of signs saying like Trump still won. Um, it's just, there's a lot of very intense emotions towards the Biden administration right now. And they're not necessarily friendly, but they're feeling like they're not getting heard. And I don't think that's something to be overlooked of how people feel is, especially in the US is a lot of times influences how they vote and they don't necessarily, nobody really votes on like cold hard facts and what would actually benefit them or not. It's how you make them feel. So, uh... What would you say is this anger? What's the root for this anger? Would you say it's all in the jobs being taken away or is it a mixture of all those uh, emotions going around? Because the question would be how, how could Biden or how could he influence or let's say either party get those people back to uh, feeling listened to and uh, feeling represented by the politicians in charge? Yeah, I think it's um, having them feel heard. So whether it's creating programs that actually return money to their pockets um, and maybe personally, uh, like local politicians that are on the Democratic Party going to them and hearing them out, um, But to be honest, I feel like there's, you need to get like a majority of people on your side, quote unquote, before uh, people will start voting in a different way or start listening to you when you talk about climate change or other facts. Because in the US, a lot of people vote in a similar pattern as their friends do. And if you listen to like Fox media or whatever the conservative media outlet is, and they're telling you that all the Democrats are shit and you should always vote Republican and they're not in a good place and they're not seeing much change in their media community. I think, yeah, they'll continue listening to the media and have um, very much an us versus them rhetoric in their mind. So perhaps, I mean, maybe the Biden program of giving checks to all of the um, unemployed or low income families will actually help and they will see that, um, I don't know, the liberals aren't evil, but um, I, I don't know what the answer is, to be honest. It's, it's one, one thing uh, that is being done, I think, for putting money back into their pockets, as you said, is uh, the child welfare cuts, I guess you'd say. It said in one of the articles that you're supposed to get around $3,000 for having children or like not not for having children but so the children can have a better future uh, is that something that's uh, what do you guys think that do you think it's enough to uh, spark change or to make a difference because if it let's take the uh, German example 
of uh, yeah, we got this that directly transferred children money. Kindergeld, yeah, yeah, like oh, yeah, uh, it does make a difference and it helps people, but mostly, uh, I think Germans would agree that it's the Kindergeld on its own is definitely not enough to get remotely the same opportunities to, to everybody. Uh, I would actually flip the question around, how do you guys, or how do Germany, um, how do they feel about Kindergeld? And then also, I don't know, perhaps like refugees or immigrants um, moving here and then having potentially more children than like the local residents and then applying for Kindergeld. I've heard um, or I've read a lot of interesting articles where uh, the conservative Germans are very angry with that, uh, with how, I don't know, the, the foreigners are exploiting the system and uh, applying for all of these social programs. And I think some of that rhetoric is, still, is also relevant in the US where there is that divide of uh, who's gonna abuse the system and who are um, the honest good people that the system needs to benefit. Yeah, well, uh, I can't talk for all of Germany no. <laughs> I think the, uh, the the points you're making, like the, uh, what we can't forget here, is that these uh, conservatives make up a big part of voters and the popular population of Germany. So, uh, like recently, we've had, or uh, just yesterday, I think we've had the polls in uh, Sachsen-Anhalt, and you could see that uh, I think along people under twenty, the uh, AfD, which is basically the most conservative far-right party you can have. Uh, got the most votes. So I think a lot of young people are feeling that way. I personally do not because I think uh, like my, basically my two points are that uh, I think in, if you look at the grand scheme of things, the damage done through people that are, um, what do you call it? Uh, that lie to get these uh, children money and abuse the system. Basically that the damage done is for example, not as big as the damage that's done by uh, some economical crimes, I would say. Uh, like if you take, uh, this gets really philosophical now, but uh, if you take, for example, the VW uh, scandal, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to know how many uh, people actually died because the amount of the uh, poison in the air was, uh, was a lot bigger than it was supposed to be. They breathe it in and... Uh, these really not measurable things, but they maybe died 10 years earlier on. Um, and also there's a huge economic damage or CUM-X, for example. I think if you just look at the economic damage, that this damage is way bigger. So uh, I don't think it's fair to just focus on that and completely forget these uh, economic crimes that have these, uh, not, not really the, uh, the damage doesn't occur right now, but if you look at it like, in 30 years from now, the damage done by these things will be a lot bigger. I guess uh, Mittelbar would be the German word. I don't know how it translates. Uh, do you know it, Tobias? Uh, yeah, like the, the secondhand smoke. Yeah, se yeah second, basically, basically that. And uh, yeah, very well said. Thank you. Um, uh, externality, uh, I think. The, um, sorry? Externality, maybe, or the... Yeah. 
yes and like in, indirect indirect yeah, yeah indirect yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah and now we got yeah, that was the first point and the second point i think is with the demographic change in germany people are like the population gets older and older and uh since germans are like uh these like for me all of the people come here are german but these uh traditional german families are usually not having enough children to uh take care of the ever older growing population uh it's a good thing if these people or if people come here and have children and contribute to society and i think the only way they can contribute is by treating being treated like a full member of society and getting the same opportunities or the best opportunities they can and getting the best education possible the best jobs possible etc etc and I think for that, it's a good thing to get money to people who have children. Maybe there could be some conditions put on it, but uh, I'm not too sure. I, that's just my general idea, but maybe you guys want to talk about it as well. Yeah, and basically, I, in, in most points, I, I agree with you. And maybe to add to that, um, the way the, the AFD um, gets their voters, I think, it is fairly easy if there are any problems, for example, in Saxon-Anna, that's a very rural area and that is maybe comparable to the points you made about the US already. Um, there's um, most, many, many young people, especially, that fear to, to get no good qualified jobs or no job at all. And um, the argument that the AFD is making then is that the, the foreigners or the immigrants uh, can be blamed for that, so they're taking the jobs. Um, or they apply for social security and um, they're taking that money away. And that's kind of the, the, the rhetoric scheme that Trump used as well. And I think that there are many positive aspects of immigration, as Benedict mentioned. Um, in, the, in the next 30 to 40 years, we will need um, many, many more uh, young people to, to pay for the... Um, What's the meaning of a cancer? Um, retirement so, funds. What yeah. You say? yeah, retirement. Yeah. Yeah, for retirement, and um, those people contribute contribute to that. That that is out of question if they if they come here and they, they get work, and um, still the amount of, of immigrants is so low that all the arguments the AfD is making about them do not really really apply in the in the reality, and yet. Um, I think the people's perception is that um, they are kind of the only party that, that really understands them or is trying to change anything because they're just general anger, like comparable to the US with, with the current government and they won't change no matter what. And that's what the, the AFD suggests they, they stand for. That's interesting. Um, it's interesting the point you made, Benedict, with like, BW and other, like, almost like the white collar crimes would have such a larger impact on the economy um, and would cause more damage either through people's un, like earlier death or through also just like financially, but that's not what, um, the people that feel left behind focus on, they focus on 
you know, other humans, like things, things that they understand maybe closer that they're like, Hey, this is, I'm a human. That other person is also human. They, I feel like they took away an opportunity from me versus I think viewing a corporation or a company that took away something from them is a little bit more abstract for them. Um, this is also maybe getting a little philosophical, I don't know. But um, it's interesting how those arguments can be used to sway people to vote one way or another because it's something that they can relate to. Um, and would they would turn a blind eye to um, a corporation that would potentially cause more damage to them long-term in their community. And maybe that, that argument of um, tackling the bigger companies with, with higher taxes, for example, um, and to, to redistribute, to, to redistribute that, that wealth that they generate and the income that they, that they make in the US or in, in Europe or wherever, um, that might also be uh, part, one part of um, Biden's plan to to increase this or to to make make low income um, workers or employees uh, maybe be heard by the government and maybe that will work but i think there is a huge opposition by these economically successful big com big tech companies or big companies in general especially in america but it the same applies for europe as well yeah, I agree, but I also think it's a it's really really difficult situation because on the one hand you have the uh, issue as said that they they have a big op opposition and they also have a big leverage I think just by uh, being a big employer. So, for example, that's one of the arguments how uh, basically we get the saying uh, "too big to fail." Uh, if said a uh, certain company employs one hundred thousand of people and uh, they were to be uh, hit with giant taxes or uh, brought to responsibility for certain action a lot of people would lose their jobs and these people would, wouldn't would uh, turn against the company but rather would turn against the people who made the rules so the companies had to cut their jobs basically uh, so I think it's really, really hard to uh, fight against that kind of leverage. Yeah, I mean, that's what happened in, um, in Bessemer in Alabama with, the, uh, with Amazon and um, the workers were trying to form a union and there was a vote put out, I think, early this year, late last year, and it ended up, um, the vote ended up being in the favor of Amazon where there was no union formed. But I think there was um, then articles <laughs> came out that Amazon ran a pretty large campaign internally in that, in that plant uh, to try to, you know, scare people essentially to voting no for the union vote. And I think in a town like Bessemer, uh, I mean, it's close to, I think Birmingham, which is a large city in the Southeast, um, but it's it's one of the main employers or maybe another large company like Petco, I don't know. There's the only employers are these large corporations. And if for some reason now 
it's not beneficial for them to have their plants in those towns. They might not leave this year or next year or in five years, but they will leave and then these towns are again left with nothing and it's, it's, it's hard to, for those people to have these like broad philosophical high level political discussions because they're like, I need to put food, food on the table. And so whichever party or whichever program provides that for me, I think they're gonna go with that. Yeah, also uh, think maybe from that, uh, I agree with you, it's, 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 a, it's sad that it is this way, but it's kind of a privilege to even have this discussion. Like if, if you're just completely dependent on somebody with more power, you, you don't even have, you're not even in the position to have that discussion. If the consequence for voting for the workers union is that you won't have something to eat in a month, of course you oppose the workers union. So uh, there's not oh, what, what I wanted to say with that is you can't really blame the people for doing as they do, I think. But that also leads to, um, I think Biden or like part of Bidenomics as we pointed out is to create those new jobs that aren't completely dependent on these huge companies, but are rather government subsidized in some form. And the question is how would the funding for that be created. Uh, I think that's a big point of discussion in the Cong in Congress right now that it's, uh, it's called paid for costs. Uh, it was in the New York Times article, I think. Uh, is how, how would you get the funding and uh, can it be possible? It would be like, ideally you could tax those big corporations that have all this power right now and take that funding and put it in there. But do you think it's realistic? there will be the funding for that because right now I think they're taking on a lot more debt than usual. And there are a lot of people scared about the fiscal responsibility of these plans. I'm curious to see if Biden's proposal for the global tax hike will work. Um, because obviously if you then have a higher corporate tax in the US for these big corporate companies, they'll move to Mexico, Canada, Europe, wherever, um, and then the people will also move there because then they'll, there will be jobs. Um, I don't know if it's possible, but um, that would be quite a shift, I think, if global economies will decide that, hey, we will unite on this like global tax rate for corporations, but it seems very, far-fetched to me maybe I, I'm I'm not an economist so I don't, I don't know but um, it seems like it's a huge hurdle to jump over to get all these companies and countries to agree yeah or um, to you want to say something no right I, okay. I totally agree that um, it's it, it would be a huge step but um, I would just think it, it would be great if, if it would work. That's I'm, I'm fairly optimistic that there have never been such talks about this in, in such a scale, on such a scale. So um, of course there will be countries that um, do not agree on, on the deal uh, about the, the corporate tax and maybe this will lead to 
uh, companies go into those smaller countries. Um, but on the other hand, if you have all the big countries that have the highly skilled employees uh, that can work at these firms and all of them agree on the, on the tax deal, then I think it would be an enormous step um, to have these big companies pro provide um, some or to, to share some of their, of their income. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, I also agree with you that it's, uh, it could be a huge step forward. Like I don't see any uh, good arguments against it other than that the companies are, let's say, want to keep their wealth, uh, which is understandable from their point of view, but from a more political view, I, I would agree with you. Um, the question is, uh, do you think that, I think it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, as far as I followed the news, the G7 summit basically agreed to having a 15% taxation. But um, what, what about the rest of the, like, do you think that the G7 can uh, impose a global 15% taxation on, on the big companies? It just needs, like, I think there's, it's really hard to uphold this global stands like even if it once if, if there's agreement once there's always a big chance of somebody breaking out if it has like a really huge economic benefit for them yeah so i wonder if uh, so like the g7 they agreed if then the companies will try to find other countries to move into so i say that um because so china and the whole um crypto mining controversy where now they're there's kind of shutting that down and the only reason I remember this is that they were talking about potentially moving some of the whatever the servers to like Kazakhstan and I'm like oh, does Kazakhstan even do we even have the infrastructure to support this but I think it's always interesting when like the public so like the government tries to enforce a certain tax rate and there's no pressure from the private sector, companies seem to find some sort of other loophole to make it work to have those returns and profits in a different place. So they figure out still how to make money even though there's now this tax rate um, versus if the pressure is coming from the actual consumers or employees or just in general, the people that, so to say, like pay their bills, then they might accept that tax hike. I don't know if there's, if it's pressure from like private individuals and it's in mass and they're saying, hey, we want your workers, uh, whether you're Amazon, Facebook, whoever, to pay back to the communities that they're in or pay their employees enough to have a decent standard of living, then I could see it working. But if it's just the government saying, hey, you need to pay this amount in taxes, I think the private sector will always find some sort of loophole to avoid it. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's something I can agree on, but uh, also I can really 
or like that's that's my impression as well but i'm really not an expert in the matter so uh i i don't know if it's uh, like uh like to be a said it's uh it's a huge uh or like one big difference to before is that there's a it's the first time there's this big agreement on having this text by the political side so uh i don't think that always was the case for example i'd say under trump there was more of this uh national protectionism or economical protectionism uh, i guess would be the right term so maybe there's something that can be done with it but uh we'll have to see how it plans plays out i guess um yeah i wonder if the pandemic has accelerated this kind of feeling of we are on one world even though we're many nations uh we're all affected by economic policies or whatever of other nations and it's a little bit more a globalized view but who knows yeah i think the uh i agree like even one of the articles talked about that it took the uh like that the as we compared that the 2010 crash of the economy or 2009 uh wasn't enough for us to have a change in paradigm or how, is it called paradigm paradigm just, or i don't know uh like the way uh you look at, at a thing it's called paradigm in german but i don't know if it directly translates how, how did you call it like a paradigm shift yeah exactly that <laughs> and that that wasn't enough but it took the global pandemic and uh trump basically that's one of the points made by the articles that this is now possible. Um, I don't need to uh, read articles. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wanted to uh, shift to another topic. What one other article said, which I also thought was uh, really interesting, was the article about the infrastructure and public places, basically that COVID, uh, which banned all of us in private places, showed the importance of uh, having nice and beautiful outdoors. Uh, and I don't know if this is uh, like now that there's more of a public understanding of uh, basically, or I think more of a value for common goods or public goods without uh, wanting to sound communist, but basically the, uh, yeah, the, the goods used by everybody like the trains and uh, yeah, infrastructure basically. Uh, there could, this could also be the chance of, uh, of putting toward or like focusing, uh, increasing the diversification and the thought process about sad issues like climate change, et cetera. Um, so I just want to read out one quote really quick that um, why, uh, why we should invest in public places. What do you think, what do you think about it? Um, it said, beauty matters to a democracy. It instills reverence for the common good and fosters a sense that the public sphere is worthy of exaltion. In particular, aesthetics does not matter so much as the clear sense that people took care and put thought into construction at hand, that there is a sense of respect and deep aspiration for all who enter and use our public spaces. And uh, yeah, this quote was in the context of criticizing how public schools were installed to be without daylight and without windows and US and uh, train stations were made really ugly and that basically all contact you had with public spaces was making you feel like this is a machine 
you're you know entering the machine of taxation the machine of learning for schools uh, and that this needs to be or could be a chance coming out of the pandemic because it seems like the global global value or the societal value of these goods has increased um, what, what do you think about like yeah. do you think that's a that's a realistic thing or uh like for me uh, like I, if you anybody of you wants uh, to make a point of it, about it feel free to just interrupt anytime but, like for me it it did uh, have this kind of or um let's put it this way uh i i, I began to through, through the pandemic i began to yeah i had to limit my hobbies and meeting friends etc like everybody did and Cause of that, I was forced to spend more time in public spaces and taking walks and going to the Rhine River and parks and I don't know, going to the local uh, basketball uh, court, outside court and uh, stuff like that. And I got this new understanding and feeling of that if this would be, uh, or I even found like I saw people littering and stuff like that, and I figured also for me because I didn't uh, I wasn't littering or something like that but I didn't have this much respect for these places so I was just like oh yeah it's, there's no need to do anything here as I'm not spending time in here but I think I really agree with the point of the article that if you come to a place and you have the feeling everything there was created with a purpose and it was supposed to show you the beauty of life and the interesting things and all kind of colors whatever uh that you have a way different respect for it and this could also be a way to spark imagination and uh innovation and create a change of thinking i don't want to be the only one that responds but <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna i'll say something cool <laughs> um yeah. i was just gonna say sorry i've been listening because i i don't have any other comments for their points but it was interesting because when i came to germany last summer i feel like the the tourism industry within Germany spiked so much. And it's funny to me because like Germans always want to travel out of the country when they're going on vacation. Like they'll go to Italy or they'll go to Spain or like Portugal. But then you don't realize how beautiful like your own country is until you're like forced to travel within it. And I think a lot of people realize that during the pandemic as well, was that like, you don't have to leave, you don't have to travel, you don't have to like take a plane to actually like relax and like take in like beauties of nature and stuff and all that because it's like in your backyard. So I thought that was also like to your point about like how people began to realize like the beauties of like their local surroundings rather than always going somewhere or anything. Yeah. yeah. I think aesthetic um, and things being clean and nice uh, to your point on littering is plays such a huge role in people's like perception of themselves and also like self-worth and self-value. Um, so if you're constantly surrounded um, or you live in say in a neighborhood where it's just like a concrete jungle and there's no public green space, there's no park you can go to, no bike trails, you start to, um, I don't know, your outlook on life kind of changes. It's that you don't have this balance between um, 
like what's natural and uh, green and kind of healthy in this like a very industrialized world and you if you're constantly surrounded by like noises and like artificial sounds you, you get used to that and I think when you don't have the nature sounds to balance it out uh, it does something to your, to your brain where you um, you shut down just because there's so much um, uh, you have like too much stimulation and it's not all you don't have time to relax and have that creativity flow that you were talking about you don't or that um, place to just be calm because you're always stimulated um, so I think now there's like a lot more research going into mental health and the effects of your immediate surroundings on your ability to succeed later in life and how you deal with stress and all, et cetera, et cetera. So investing in like pretty public spaces, I think is uh, very crucial to having a healthy society. Yeah, this is, I have a random side note, kind of relates to it. Um, it's like an interesting story about like how we've been so like used to using our media and like, you know, like using people use Snapchat and there's filters on it. And then now like we have Zoom where we like stare at ourselves all day and that there's been like an, a rise in like plastic surgery on your faces because people are just like so like it, like the way you look on Zoom is probably not how you look in person, you know, like that's not realistic, but because we stare ourselves all day, people have become so much more self-aware. And I think their self-esteem has also gone down because they're like, wow, like I actually look like this, <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's also, it's been, I think that's also another part of like the mental health aspect is that not only are we looking at screens all day, which is probably not the best, like we were made to do that, but like we're staring at ourselves all day which is like a human, like we weren't born with mirrors, you know, like, so that's also another interesting aspect of the yeah. pandemic. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Because I think that's, uh, um, it's, it's like this, like you, uh, you basically, you're forced to see yourself like there's basically no way to evade it right now. Yeah. And also like, I think this all gets uh, amplified by social media etc cetera, etc cetera. and also what i think is uh like that's the one thing and on the other hand everybody can basically uh look as beautiful as they can by just adding the snapchat photo like let's say a like, beautiful in quotation marks uh, mm -hmm. and we're all beautiful in our own yeah yeah <laughs> exactly exactly like uh, everybody's beautiful in their heart but uh yeah, I think I think this is all. That's a big issue. Like if if this, uh, like you guys said, if these overstimulation and uh, filters being used lead to people needing more plastic surgery, or just uh, having like needing plastic surgery to feel some sort of self worth. I don't want to condemn any form of plastic surgery. Like everybody can do with their body what they want. It's uh, not that I care, but uh, I think it shouldn't be that uh, that plastic surgery becomes the only way you have some sort of self-esteem or self-worth. And I think if that's the case, that's uh, an issue that needs to be tackled and could very well be done or like one part of it could be 
like you guys said, these uh, beautiful public spaces, which give you the, the retreat you need, basically. Yeah, and I think there's studies been done where you, the more you move your body, you can move the um, energy through or your feelings through your body. And then you're able to process whatever stressful situations or whatever situations that you're going through easier because you're not confined to just sitting in your apartment or just being surrounded by the tall menacing buildings or schools without any windows, which is very true for public schools in the US uh, that were built. Uh, I, I, I hope now they, they have windows. Um, but I remember sitting in classrooms, like if they were in the middle of the school, like it was just like concrete essentially. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that like public space and infrastructure is now not only useful because it helps you say like roads help deliver goods from point A to point B and they're very like useful in a logical way, but it's also beneficial to like us humans for more like soft things like mental health and things that aren't easily quantifiable or measurable. And that now with this pandemic, there's value put on those things as well, as much as having a road that's straight and or without bumps that can get your Amazon order to you from the warehouse to your doorstep. It's uh, it's really interesting to see how these all uh, all these factors play into each other. I also just uh, realized like uh, the way uh, I really like this the way this discussion has gone. Like we started out talking about uh, the economics and uh, Bidenomics and how uh, how investment should be done and con and uh, firms should be taxed and. Uh, and we're also talking about the other aspects of these, the infrastructure as on on people's lives, and uh, it's interesting to see how all these are connected. I think, and uh, then this is kind of a uh, also a philosophical question about uh, what would you think needs to come first? Uh, basically, you could you could make the point that. Uh, by having a better economy and better infrastructure and so on, uh, there will be more investment and the mental health will improve. And it goes this way, or you could also say, or like, let's say the uh, not mental health, but the self-worth and uh, the points we discussed, like I'll just summarize it by saying mental health. But you could also put it the other way that uh, you need this improvement of self-worth and mental health and so on first uh, in order for people to feel, to basically be the best form of themselves. And uh, this could then influence the economy and bring change towards the society. Uh, yeah, wh what do you guys think about these two uh, points, basically? Do, do you think they are connected in this way or am I like going way too far here? I know it's just something I just uh, thought of. I'm a firm believer that every congressperson or every politician needs to have a therapist. Um, I think a lot of policies are based on fear and uh, this feeling of somebody's taking something away from me and everything is scarce and they have a lot of like childhood trauma that's unresolved. Um, so I would, to answer your question, I would say that 
mental health. If mental health comes first, then I think a lot of um, quote unquote common sense policies that help society and advance the economy and nations will then logically come into place. But maybe I'm just idealistic in that way. I mean, I think you're kind of right if you look at Trump's mental health record. Like, I don't think, I don't think the four years would have been those four years had it not been for his problematic mental health issues, honestly, that that were addressed, but no one really like, no one did anything about it, you know? People knew that he was like, something wasn't right. Like there's no way the decisions he made was like in line with like someone who's like completely stable and the stuff he said in public TV, like there's no way. So maybe that does have to be addressed with politicians, like you said, but that's also an interference of like their own choice and you shouldn't be like demanding or forcing that upon them. That's more of like a, I think that's gonna more of like a cultural, maybe in like a few years, it'll be more of a cultural norm to do that. But I think if you force every politician, like even like, especially more the Republicans, I guess, to go see a therapist, I don't know how well that would go down. Yeah, I don't think they would self-impose a law for to have them go into therapy. Yeah. Because some people just don't believe in it. Like, yeah. they're just not going to do that. Yeah, I think a big step to us, like, yeah, like I agree with you that uh, basically forcing it upon themselves is not going to work or basically uh, yeah, forcing, let's put it, not only politicians, but basically forcing this topic on anybody doesn't help but i think one way to uh let or let to be put mental health more out there is that to just normalize talking about it and uh not treating people as crazy persons that's also one thing that kind of uh i didn't like about the way trump's public uh, mental health was put out in the public it was always put like uh it wasn't the same sense as uh, oh his mental health is bad he's dumb, but not not like not seeing the that they could actually like I'm no doctor but uh, not seeing that there's actually something that that is wrong with him without judging him like mm-hmm. just saying there's something wrong like you have a broken bone so there's something wrong with your body and that could be fixed like I think this is the way mental health should be talked about because if you break your arm, you go see a doctor. So if your mind's arm is broken, metaphorically speaking, uh, you should also go see a doctor and that should become a normal thing. And I think this way, maybe uh, it could eventually be normalized for a politician or member of Congress to go see a therapist. Great. Stuff like that. So I think it was uh, really cool to see this the way this discussion developed. Um, yeah, thank you all for coming, I guess. And it was really nice to have a talk about Bidenomics and life in general. <laughs>